get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is a character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Opinions matter. Time now for today's big thing with Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. 902 with Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. And it is time for uh, one big thing. By the way, your time check was brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. TMZ Sports has photos of Johnny Manziel slipping and falling in a failed cliff dive. Not hurt. But uh, surprising that they, they've got a photo of him falling off the cliff at TMZ Sports uh, on Twitter. Oh, my gosh. And he's OK. Yeah. Well, he, uh, I guess from falling off the cliff, he's OK. I don't know about the rest of them. Right. Wow. That's terrifying, though. It Does is. the cliff look very high? It's really super high. I'm, tr- I'm trying yeah. to pull it up right now. Check it out. Wow. Trevor Rosenthal, former Cardinal, tweets, We have an opportunity to set an example on how to get back to work safely. We want to take that responsibility seriously. You're going to see great length of adjustment and sacrifice made by players when play resumes. It's not going to be easy or comfortable. I'm glad that Rosie said when play resumes. That's a good thing to hear. Keyword there. I know when when you're reading these comments from people involved in this, whether it's owners or players, I look for those words when because that you know is revealing to their sentiment on if they actually do want to come to a resolution and if they do want to return. So the fact that you hear a player saying when I'm going to take it, that's positive for me. And the latest we have is that the players are unhappy and. Tony Clark, the head of the Players Association, has voiced his displeasure with the initial proposal by owners. But it is the first proposal by owners, and by nature, basically by the definition of his job, he has to voice displeasure with the initial offer by the owners. Yeah. As much as we don't like to hear it as fans because we're starving for baseball and we're starving for live sports, did anyone out there really think that the Players Association was going to be like, yep, this was fair. Thanks so much. We'll sign <laughs> off on this. Of course they weren't. No. And the initial offer is for an 82-game schedule, a 50-50 revenue share between players and ownership. There would be a universal DH. We haven't touched on that. That would be a big thing for St. Louis fans, and we'd see that. And teams would play their own 10-team division. They'd play out of their home ballparks primarily with their own 10-team division. But there would be interleague play, so the American League Central would play the National League Central, et cetera, et cetera. Let's touch on the DH because we haven't so far. Maybe it's something we bring back tomorrow and get the listeners involved mm-hmm. in because I'm very interested to see where St. Louis falls in that you know, debate there because it's obviously something that people have talked about for a very long time. But I wonder if people's stance on it has has changed. People who are anti-DH in the National League, if they're just saying, I don't really care, just give me baseball. If it involves the DH, I'll take it. Is that where you stand or how? where do you fall on those lines? On a couple of fronts. Number one, I know it's coming. Mm-hmm. So 
we might as well deal with it. It's going to be here in 2022. But what you said is the most salient point to me. If I can get baseball back with a DH, I'm on board. And if baseball wants it, the National League is the only league in the world that doesn't have the designated hitter. So with the knowledge that I am not going to be able to do anything about it anyway because it's coming in 2022. And if it's part of helping bring baseball back this year because Rob Manfred or whomever wants to do it, I'm on board. I don't love it, but it's part of what we're going to have to deal with. And, hey, we've had so many changes in baseball over the years. Bob Gibson had a 1.12 ERA, so they lowered the mound. Mm -hmm. We used to have the... Two teams that won the league go to the World Series. Now we have playoffs. Baseball's dramatically different than what it was when they played it in to 1920. So it's just another change. I'll deal with it. I was in the camp of, I cannot believe that we've existed this long where the American League and National League didn't play by the, the same construct and essentially the same set of rules of the ways that you're constructing your teams. And I didn't really care if the DH came to the National League or they eliminated it. I just thought, let's get the American League and the National League on the same page. So the fact that we could get there at some point, let's do it. Now, Jeff Passan of ESPN mentioned that if we don't have baseball this year, those optics are going to be awful. What happens for the players and what happens for the owners are both really freaking bad. I mean, really, really bad in, in a number of ways. It's bad financially. It's bad optically. It's bad for the stability of the, the, the future of the sport itself. It's just so bad if there's not a deal, which is why I think there's going to be a deal. I, I think that we are in a particularly ugly week right now and that if you follow baseball news this week, you think that baseball is not going to happen this year. But I think they're, they're throwing haymakers in the first round. It's what you do early in a negotiation because you want to see just how strong somebody else's position is. And uh, I don't think either side's going to buckle. I think there's going to be contention, posturing, uh, words, uh, disappointment, anger, all of the things that typically come uh, in a negotiation that has a finite timetable. The beginning of that cut when he was saying it's going to be really, really bad and he's pessimistic, as he talks through it, you get a little bit more positive towards the end, saying you're going to throw haymakers in the beginning. This is just what's going to happen. But do you think, Randy, that baseball or the Players Association is watching the way the public reacts to this and if that might change the way that they're approaching this at all? Or do you think they don't care? I think they have to, based on what happened after losing the World Series in 1994. And it took McGuire and Sosa to bring baseball back. And crowds in baseball were way down for 95, even when you had Cal Ripken set the all-time consecutive games record, 96-97, crowds were down. And it took that home run chase to kind of bring baseball crowds back to where they were. So it is incumbent upon both sides and ownership, because ownership is going to be there for the long term. Players are going to be there for a defined number of years, but they're going to retire and they're not going to be in the industry anymore. If you're an owner, you want to make sure that you don't kill the golden goose because you're planning on that golden goose living to a ripe old age. Yeah, and you would like to think that baseball would have learned from past mistakes and they would look back at that prior situation and say, okay, we've got to figure something out. We can't go down that road again and upset the fans the way that we did because this this is a completely different situation. Fans are already going to be coming to the ballpark, in my opinion, less than before because you're going to have fans with financial constraints. You're going to have people that are still nervous about entering public spaces, at least for a little bit. So even I think when fans return, we might see kind of a, a buildup effect. So why would you want to alienate the people that want to come back? 
You, you're exactly right. You don't want to alienate anybody at this stage. Not only what you're talking about, but there are going to be people that desperately want to come back, but because of the economy, can't because they can't buy tickets. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of things that go into this from baseball's perspective. And if you're an owner, you also want to protect those revenue streams that come from television. You don't want to miss a year of your local TV revenue, and you don't want that your your partners, and the Cardinals literally are part owners of Fox Sports Midwest, Mm -hmm. you don't want them to lose out on uh, your partnership and you providing the product for that partnership. And I think the owners are in a really tough spot. And normally I'm not pro-owner, but when you think about the financial hit that they're going to take without fans in the stands and what is hanging in the balance to get baseball back as far as the TV revenue, I mean, they are very motivated, I would think, to get this done. And the Major League Baseball Players Association has said a system that restricts player pay, that would be the 50-50 split, is based on revenues, is a salary cap, period. And MLB, according to Evan Drellich of The Athletic, says we're not trying to regulate payrolls, we're not trying to set a precedent, none of the above. What they're trying to do is, in this time of diminished revenue, they're trying to make it more fair and equitable between players and owners because I would think that, ultimately, if players got what they wanted, which is they want their regular salary, Regardless of whether or not there's a 40% drop-off in revenues, you don't want to put yourself, in if you're an owner, in the possibility of actually losing money. None of these people got to be billionaires because they lost money. And they, they aren't going to put themselves in that position. No, and if the players won't budge, it's going to get ugly. Yeah. Well, who needs the money more, players or owners? You think Bill DeWitt has a better opportunity to pay that $10,000 a month house payment on his six houses than Paul Goldschmidt does? Yes, I do. Over the long term? I do, I yes. think he does, too. So, ultimately, financially, the pressure is going to be applied to the players, I think. I just want to see it get done, right? I do, too. And what we're talking about is exactly what Jeff Passan said would happen. We're, we're talking about negotiations that are going on behind the scenes, and ultimately, they'll come out on the other end later the week with uh, an agreement because they'd be crazy. They'd be stupid to not come away with an agreement. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. And coming up next on Carriker and Smallman, the new Pro Football Hall of Famer and a guy that I just want to hear the voice of at a time like this. Isaac Bruce is next on 101 ESPN. With Michelle Smallman, I'm Randy Carricker. It is great to have you with us. Carricker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. And we go to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line and welcome one of our favorite people and a Pro Football Hall of Famer coming up this summer. The one and only Isaac Bruce is with us. Isaac, it's great to have you. How are you doing? Hey, what's up, Randy? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me. How are you handling quarantining? Uh, you know what? It, uh, not, not too big of a change for us. Um, uh, the homeschooling part is uh, something that I'm uh, learning to love, uh, to enjoy, and uh, I think we're getting a lot out of it. So just being around uh, the family a, a lot more, uh, I think is good. I want to ask you this, and early on in this situation, we had Aeneas on, and you two are both men of great logic and great faith, and I just want to ask you, and I know you've thought about this, why do you think this is happening? Um, well, uh, I think this is a, a wake-up call on a lot of different levels. Um, 
I think that uh, this is an opportunity for uh, uh, people to really get to know uh, what they have been putting their trust in. And if it hasn't been uh, directed to the source, I think this is an opportunity for those adjustments to be made. And uh, not only that, but to have an opportunity to allow God to show you just who he is and what he can do in the midst of uh, what some people may be calling a pandemic or a famine, uh, that he can produce not only, you know, what your resources have been producing for you, but probably over and above. I mean, that's my experience with, uh, with the father. So, um, I feel like this is an opportunity for those who have become workaholics, uh, who don't spend time with their families. This is an opportunity to reconnect and, uh, be joined, uh, into, you know, uh, family issues and family settings. That, that that we've probably never had. I mean, we haven't had it in my 47 years. So uh, I think this is that opportunity and we're, we're getting that. Thanks for that perspective, Isaac. I think a lot of people really resonate with what you're saying there. But one of the things that we have been doing since we've been at home is kind of revisiting old teams, amazing games, obviously in the absence of live live sports. And a lot of people have been locked into the last dance and watching Michael Jordan and those 90s Bulls teams. And when I watch that and I watch Michael Jordan and how he pushed his teammates to be great or at least challenged them to attempt to be as great as he was, I thought about your team and the greatest show on turf. And there was wasn't one singular person on that team that was great. That team was laced with greatness. So it made me wonder, was there one person on that team that kind of assumed that Jordan role and maybe pushed other people on the team to work harder or challenge them to be great? Uh, first and foremost, uh, probably I, I'd have to say uh, Coach Vermeil, Coach Marks, they were those they were those guys. And, and from that leadership, you know, it kind of trickled down to uh, just the players and the leaders that we had in both huddles. I mean, you look at the defense, you look at London Fletcher, uh, the Mike Joneses, you look on the offensive side, you got the Orlando Pace, uh, Falk, you have Warner. Um, you know, these are guys and people who close the door early on a lot of foolishness. I mean, you know, the, 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 you know, the outcasts of, uh, uh, that that would normally be in some locker rooms. The guy who just didn't want to, you know, uh, come in line with you know the way we do things. You know that door was shut really early by a lot of those guys, and you know we were taught to just fall in line and do as those people did and get their results. And um, it's amazing just how we all had that one mindset of winning a championship, and uh, we kind of knew what it took. Uh, we we knew that we didn't have much time to uh, really. Uh, you know, just act a fool like some people would do. And, you know, like I said, that door was closed quickly. Isaac, from the first time I ever saw you in practice in 1995, I thought that you challenged other people in practice, though. You didn't have to say anything. It was with your effort in practice, whether it was a defensive back that was going against you or the other wide receivers that were lining up to run a route behind you. I thought your efforts challenged other guys. Oh, uh, definitely. That was that was part of it. I mean, um, you know, in watching this documentary, it's it's so it's like you know it's like being at home, and you know you have those moments where you must challenge yourself, and that challenge has to begin in practice. And for my children, I tell them that you know some of the biggest stuff you face is 
you know, it's going to be here at home first so that when you're out in the field, um, you know, it's not a surprise to you. So there, there are moments when you see, uh, you know, defensive backs and uh, wide receivers, they engage or, or they get in a fight. Offensive line and defensive line, they engage and get in a fight. Always felt like that if, you know, the guys who are going up against Orlando, if they could beat Orlando in practice, that'd be no problem for them to beat, you know, the, the, the Jonathan Ogden's and other guys that they have to go up against in our, in our division. So um, just that proving ground, it always began in practice. And uh, we made sure that, you know, uh, if we were going to fight, um, fight me first. I'll fight my defensive backs first. And from there on Sunday, I know you'll fight with me when it comes to fighting, you know, a Cardinal or 49ers or, or, or those people. So um, that respect and that proven ground always happened in practice first. It's, it's funny that you bring up Orlando's name because he was just so good that sometimes guys going against him playing right end just so that they wouldn't get disheartened would have to be moved to the left side now and then. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, another thing, um, you know, he was a guy that challenged himself. I mean, because um, he had to prove every day that he was Orlando the Great. I mean, you know, you have a guy come in, a fresh uh, rookie, first-round pick, second-round pick, and uh, they want to they wanna show you why they're that pick. And, you know, you see Mount, Mount Pace standing there. So now he has to prove to them why he is who he is. And uh, that was an everyday process, uh, sometimes in practice, especially in training camp. So, you know, you had to you had to fortify your reputation. I mean, it's, it's a it's a prove it to me game, and we had to prove it day in and day out. Isaac, as you talk about this, it's obvious that you have that competitive drive, that competitive nature, and it seems like everyone on that team did as well. And one of the things that we are seeing in the last dance is that with Michael Jordan, that bled over into the locker room. It bled over into his personal life, just trying to satiate that competitive nature at all times. Did that happen with the greatest show on turf? Did you guys find competition in other ways off the field? Uh, I think it did. I mean, uh it was uh, just a competitive mindset set for a lot of people on that team. And, uh, you know, it was contagious, which was a good thing. Um, I, I, I think the, the, the true crux of it really be, began before the, you know, the construction of the greatest show on turf. Um, you know, when I was drafted in 1994, we didn't have a very good team. And it seems as if, uh, you know, players really didn't care. I mean, my second year when I came into the league and, you know, you know, I started to have some success, but at the same time, team success was escaping us. And, you, you know, I just got, I was done with that. I mean, I didn't, I didn't want that. I wanted to go to the playoffs. I wanted to have an opportunity to play and, and win in a Super Bowl. And uh, I just started to feel like, you know, a lot of guys that I was even drafted with, they weren't on the same page. So I really started to really shut down from a, from a standpoint of, uh, you know, going out and hanging out, have, even having dinner with guys because, you know, I wanted more. So that competitive nature, you know, started to uh, started to start to manifest itself in a, from a standpoint that if I don't trust you, if I can't trust you in practice, if I can't trust you to block these guys when you have to block them, I mean, I don't think I should hang around you. So, you know, we football players and athletes were strange. Um, I think respect is, is, is a lot bigger than I like you or I don't like you. Um, we go out to, to gain the res- respect of our peers and coaches. 
Isaac, it sounds exhausting as, I, as I'm listening to you talk about this, to feel that competitive nature all the time, to feel like, you know, I don't even want to go to dinner with these guys because I'm so laser focused on my quest to win. After you guys won the Super Bowl, was there a sigh of relief or did it feel like the pressure was almost doubled because then you had to just lace them back up and do it all over again? Well, there was a sigh of relief uh, probably right up until the start of training camp. I mean, you know, or, or the off-season programs because, I mean, being being in the National Football League, it's 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 from Sunday to Sunday. I mean, uh, most guys believe what they see on the film, but most guys don't believe what they see on the film. And what I mean by that is that, okay, you may have shut this guy down for two catches and probably 15 yards, but I'm not him. So uh, we'll probably come out and run the exact same stuff, and I expect to catch, you know, probably seven catches, 150 for two touchdowns versus this same guy. So... Um, just, just having that mindset of, uh, I have to prove it to you and I got to make you prove it to me. I think it bodes well for a lot of, a lot of players and it bodes well for, you know, uh, the competition level that, that the NFL has and that it breeds. Isaac, when you see uh, a guy like Jordan and you see the really ultra competitive guys that we were talking about that, that you played with, is that competitive fire something that is inherent or are you born with it or can that be taught? I think both. I think some people are born with it, and then you know it it becomes contagious. I mean, as we look and see, we we see what Jordan uh, was going through. I mean, he learned it in his family, in his household, and when he meet when he met a guy like Scottie Pippen, um, Scottie Pippen had just about the same physical tools as a Michael Jordan, but that fire had to be lit, and and when that fire got lit, now you have two very dominant basketball players that will not take no for an answer. So. Um, it can be taught. I think uh, guys can pick it up. I think when you know, once that nature changes, uh, you see a different person. I mean, you look at it from a boxing standpoint. Uh, you know, I hear stories about Buster Douglas. He wasn't that guy. Uh, he wasn't the same guy that knocked out Mike Tyson before. You know, he was Mike he, before he knocked out Mike Tyson. So somewhere down the line, you start to you, you know you start to uproot trees or plants that 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 shouldn't have been planted on the inside of you and new trees are replanted and it produces a different fruit. So uh, I think competitive, you can be born with it and you can also, uh, you can also learn to be more competitive. Isaac Bruce does amazing things in the St. Louis community still and the Hall of Famer still planning to have his free, free football clinic this summer, hopefully June 20th, but I know that you want to get it in. Absolutely. We're still kind of in a holding pattern right now, trying to figure out, you know, if we can put this clinic on and uh, uh, hopefully we can. We've been going 15 years strong here doing it and uh, the kids love it. The parents, they love it as well. Um, you know, everything is kind of on hold as far as with the Hall of Fame is still on hold right now. And uh, we're still gathering information about that. Uh, only thing that I can truly say that is uh, the gala for the Isaac Bruce Foundation. We're moving ahead on that, moving forward on it, and hopefully to have it uh, uh, really nailed down for July 24th. So uh, all the information about that is on my website, IsaacBruce.org, and uh, we're looking to get it done. Hey, but before we let you go, uh, you mentioned that you're uh, you're on hold in regards to the Hall of Fame, but how's that Hall of Fame speech coming along? <laughs> You know, it, um, you know, things like that tend to write themselves. Uh, so I make sure I keep a notebook by me. Uh, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and may jot something down. Or when I'm rehabbing, uh, you know, some thoughts will come to my mind, some people will come to my mind, and I just make sure I have a, 
a notepad close enough so I can just write those thoughts down so that I don't lose them. And, um, you know, it's just going to be full of thank yous, thank yous. And uh, I mean, it could take a couple of shots at some people, some organizations, <laughs> but we'll see. <laughs> I love it. Hey, you're the best. We love you, Isaac. Thanks so much for taking some time with us. We'll talk soon. And uh, you are going in. At some point, you're, you're going to make that speech in Canton, and, uh, and we'll be there for it. Absolutely, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you, sir. Great Isaac Bruce with us on 101 ESPN. He's always got such great perspective, doesn't he? He really does. And I think a lot of people needed to hear that. You know, Mm -hmm. it it is a very difficult time out there, but also getting this additional time with your family is a gift. It's a a gift you probably didn't want or expect, but it's a gift nonetheless. Coming up next on Carriker and Smallman, you're killing me, Smalls. Stick around. It's next on 101 ESPN. What's totally killing Smalls right now? You're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me, Smalls, with Michelle Smallman on 101 ESPN. Michelle is upset because I'm telling tasteless, no arms, no legs jokes here in the studio. Russell got me. No arms, no legs, and a pile of leaves. Russell. (laughs) Yeah. No, and I know that, uh, that, hey, it's the same listenership. You people are great all day long. And uh, I've seen your texts before, 65780, about no arms, no legs. So, it's, uh, Oh, this was from listeners? Oh, well, they're from, they're from everywhere. Well, I must be living under a rock because I had never heard any of those jokes before. <laughs> okay. So it's time for uh, You're Killing Me Smalls here on 101 ESPN. Randy, before we get to any of the stories that I have on deck for us today, we've been talking a lot about the state of baseball and about the owners and the Players Association and how they're at this impasse and deciding uh, on a new... Anyway, we we know the story, but I wanted to hear from Matt. We've had a lot of mic drops today. No arms and legs on a porch. (laughs) The owners couldn't have been dumb enough to not realize that there wouldn't be fans in the stands if baseball came back. when they were negotiating the deal that they made right before the beginning of the season. They didn't put their eggs in the right basket, and now they're trying to go back on their deal. Instead, they chose to put all their effort into decimating the draft, which they got, and now they're trying to force the players to give up what they got in that, which was a year of service time and salary. I don't think they're trying to give up the service time. Players, if they didn't play a game this year, were going to get the service time. And the owners did make the $170 million advance to players. But I I think there were a lot of people, including in the administration, that probably baseball leadership was talking to that said, yeah, by midsummer, you'll be able to play. I really honestly don't think that they thought or that anybody reasonably thought that this was going to be a situation where you'd play a whole season without fans, which is 40% of the revenue that the owners generate. You know, Randy, I had just recovered from the break. I I was struggling to throw to this mic drop because I was trying not to laugh, and then you hit me with the Matt joke. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, come on, Are you unhappy about this? I'm just saying, you know, we've got to do some radio here. Can we at least, uh, do you have another one you want to get out before we move on? Um... <laughs> what do you call a man with no arms and no legs who gets into a fight with his cat? Claude. <laughs> okay, moving on to something that I know you'll love. 
So we know that Tom Brady chose to leave New England, and a lot of people thought that that might have to do with his relationship with Bill Belichick. People saying, you know what? Brady has endured a lot from Belichick throughout his career. He deserves to drive off to the Florida sunshine and have a little bit of fun. Well, according to Gary Myers, uh, formerly of the New York Daily News, uh, he's reporting that Brady's deteriorating relationship with Josh McDaniels might have been part of the reason that he left for Tampa Bay. He says that Brady was, quote, worn out by Josh after all of these years, and he wanted to have more input into the game plan. Now, before we get too ahead of ourselves, Tom Brady took to Instagram, as he likes to do, mm -hmm. to dispel these rumors. He put up a photo, a little type in a story, and he says, please stop this nonsense. Please be more responsible with reporting. 19 years together and brothers for life, in reference to McDaniel. Well, that's nice of him to say. That being said, and I can understand why he would want to smooth over any discomfort with Josh McDaniels or Belichick for that matter. But if I'm Tom Brady and I know that Peyton Manning had the opportunity to run Friday practices for the Colts or Saturday practices for a Monday night game. He ran them. And I have that opportunity to do that, to see how the other half lives as quarterbacks. Drew Brees is kind of in charge of a lot of the things that the Patriots or the Saints do. Uh, Manning was. Uh, he, uh, look at Aaron Rodgers. They, he didn't like some of the things that Matt LaFleur was doing, so they let Aaron Rodgers kind of run the show. I would think if I were in Tom Brady's shoes, I would want to have a little bit more autonomy in helping out with the offense and running the offense, too. So I, I wouldn't blame him for that, but I can see how he's, he'd want to play both sides of the fence. I believe that he wants to have a little bit more control of his situation. And I think that even if there was any sort of bad blood there, of course, Brady would take to social media and say, no, no, it's all good mm -hmm. because that chapter is closed. Right. And, you know, why even dredge any of it up? But well, there, the, there was a reason why he left. Yeah, and there's going to come a day three, four, five years down the road where he's going to go back to New England and number 12 is going to be retired and they're going to want to bring all these people back and he wants to maintain good relationships with them. I can see that. His Hall of Fame speech, all of these yep. things. Plus, I think if Tom Brady is ever going to give credence to any of the beefs he has, whether it's Belichick, McDaniels, etc., it's going to be in a book that he writes that people have yep. to pay 30 bucks to read Bingo. and he's going to profit off that story. Don't you're you think? Exactly right. No doubt about it. But I will say this. It does seem to your point about him wanting to kind of see how the other quarterbacks live. Doesn't it seem like we're hearing from Brady more now and that there's this lightness to him now that he's in Florida? I mean, he's showing all these pictures of him on a jet ski. He's chopping it up with the media. I mean, he went on stupidity with the Levitard show to talk about this charity golf tournament. It just seems like as far as more of a personality and rather just a quarterback, we're hearing and seeing from Tom Brady a lot well, more. Compare our friend Chris Long, his entire social media life to the one year in New England. And there was no social media for Chris in New England. It was very limited. I won't say none. But that is really something that they tamp down on with the Patriots. And that's a Belichick thing, and that's fine. But players aren't allowed to show their personality with the Patriots. And it works for them. So I think a lot of people fall in yeah. line. But, you know, it worked as well because you had the star and Tom Brady falling in line. Yeah, good point. I wonder now with Jared Stidham as the quarterback or, I mean, who's really the veteran guy there? You know, is it Edelman? Is it, I mean, it's it, whomever it is. Edelman likes to party. I was just going to say, and Edelman d didn't subscribe to the Brady regime where he's like not even dabbling in tomatoes because that's too much for him because he's on the quest to win another one. 
Edelman certainly likes to party. And I, I mean, you, Danny Amendola, when he left the Patriots, talked about how difficult it was to be in that environment. I wonder how it's going to work and if there will be any pushback when you don't have the number one guy in the team that falls in line, too. It'll be interesting to see. It really will. You're killing me, Small. So, Randy, we don't know if there's going to be fans in the stands for the NFL season, but ticket sales are still happening. And speaking of Tom Brady, his absence in New England has kind of created a void for for buyers. They're not as interested in the Patriots as they were. When you're looking at the resale market for Patriots tickets for the 2020 season, um, New England is 12th in the NFL and average ticket resale prices. Wow. Seats running an average of $433 per game, but that's obviously far less. It's a whopping 39% below last season's average. Wow, he's a he's a big deal, huh? Yeah, he, he's got some juice. Yeah, and you, you mentioned everything that surrounds him, and they are. They'll, they'll take a hit in New England to the Kraft family because there aren't as many number 12 jerseys, and I know all that's split equally with NFL properties, but that's money that, as Jerry Jones would say, it increases the pie, and <laughs> it won't be there for them. If you're a Patriots fan, who do you buy a jersey of right now? Right now, b- before you've seen Jared Stidham play, who do you buy? Probably still Brady. <laughs> Yeah, right. That's it. You know what I mean? Even though he's not there, you're probably buying a Brady jersey. Yeah. Um, Freeze pops. Who do we buy? A million percent Brady. Okay. I'm not wasting money on any of these clowns. The Patriots (laughs) are going to suck next year. I'm I'm not happy, guys. (laughs) Uh, We talk about his juice. Ticket sales, obviously, up in Tampa Bay. 135%, John. Incredible. They were not drawing, and... If you can get a star quarterback, a quarterback with a name, and you're in a market where you haven't been drawing, that's how you do it. If you get a quarterback, it makes all the difference in the world. You can draft a first-round defensive end, a first pick in the draft defensive end, but it's high draft picks or star quarterbacks, high draft pick quarterbacks that are going to move the needle for you. In this story about ticket prices, the most surprising nugget to me, the hottest seat in the NFL, do you want to guess where it is? Hold on, let me think here. Is, is it Tampa? It is not Tampa. Hold on. Let me go one more. Hottest seat in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Um, Kansas City. No. Wow. Vegas. Oh. The price tag for an average ticket in the secondary market, $1,098. That's crazy. 528% increase over the last season for the Raiders Good in Oakland, obviously. Davis. But people are really into the idea of NFL in Vegas, at least what we're seeing from a secondary ticket sales perspective. If they start winning, do people start getting the Mark Davis haircut there? You know what? I think a lot of people accidentally gave themselves a Mark Davis haircut (laughs) during quarantine, and I think that they're uh, not pleased with that development. So no, I don't think that people are going to do that for fun after this. (laughs) Thank you, Michelle. You got it, Randy. That's Killing Me Smalls on 101 ESPN. Next up, we're going to cross things over with the great Dan McLaughlin. He is coming your way with the Scoops with Danny program here on 101 ESPN. Time now for the crossover. Brought to you by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Your best choice for quality tires and expert auto service. Dobbs, the crossover on 101 ESPN. Had a chance to talk to Isaac Bruce earlier here on Carriker and Swalman. I know that that's one of Dan McLaughlin's favorite athletes, too. Oh, man, I love the Reverend. I used to go cover the Rams, uh, and I was the guy 
uh, Randy and Michelle, good morning, by the way. Good morning, Dan. And Colin, good to see you, too. Um, but I was the guy back in the day that would go down to the Dome when I first really got going on the air, okay? So I was doing the hits for ESPN Radio, WFAN, CBS, UPI, AP. And so I would go to all those games, those Ram games, when they were just awful. And it was, and I didn't... I, mean, I don't know the intricacies of a of NFL offense, but I did know the only guy they were looking at offensively with Tony Banks was the Reverend, and he still was getting open. It was unbelievable. They didn't try to run the ball. They didn't look at any other receiver. They didn't have a tight end. The blocking was terrible, and the only thing that you had was the Reverend, and he was putting up big numbers. It was a shame that it took him so long to get in the Hall of Fame because yeah. he should have been in years ago, but... Uh, so happy for him, and he's done so many great things in our community. It's awesome. DeMarco would tell us that when... Is that a fair assessment yeah. and read on how that offense oh, was? Well, here, yeah. here's, okay. here's what DeMarco would do as a defender on the sideline. He would yell to the other team, It's going to 80! It's going to 80! <laughs> and they still couldn't stop him. Couldn't stop him. I mean, Tony Banks, he would get the snap, and, and it wasn't like he was reading the defense. You know, you no. see a lot of guys are, you know, they're kind of hopping in the pocket, and they, okay, there's option one, there's option two. No. It was option one, one A, one B, one C. It was the Reverend, and that was it. And he still got open and still put up numbers. It was incredible. I wonder what that was like for him to be the guy, the only option, oh, and man. then be part of this offense that had such a diverse, you know, group of options. You know, it's a good question too because if you're the 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 guy, um, a lot of times in pro sports, to your point, you know, all of a sudden you're not necessarily the number one option. And how do guys take that? Because Certain, you know, certain players, their egos won't allow that, mm -hmm. you know, and especially at that position mm -hmm. in sports. Big I mean, time. Guys want to be the guy. Um, and he just let everybody fit in and do their thing. It was incredible. I told him one time that if I were ever going to do his presentation, this was before he was in the Hall of Fame. I said, if I were ever going to present you before the committee for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, I would just say that you caught more than 100 balls from Steve Walsh and rookie Tony Banks. And he laughed and he said, yeah, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> that should get you in right there. Right. End of story, you're in. No, he, he was. He was incredible. And, and the fact that he continues to give back to our community, I, I yeah. for all of us that are from here, I mean, and, and even if you're not, you, you live in this, this market in this city, you certainly appreciate the fact that he's, he's trying to make a difference, and he has. Love it. Meanwhile, are we going to have baseball back? <laughs> Man, I'm as optimistic as I have been, uh, even with, and I'll get into it on the show, even with, you know, you hear about the money, and that, that drives me crazy in, in these times of, of, you know, unemployment, what we're all dealing with, the, the fact that the economy is suffering, and yet it may come down to money. That bothers me. Um, but also, I understand if a player does not want to play because he doesn't feel safe or the environment isn't something that is conducive to what he feels is going to be a productive environment for safe baseball. I understand that if a player says, no, I really do. And I also, this is going to be, you know, you're supposed to make a hot take on radio. I get it. I'm learning this business, guys. So uh, <laughs> I, I also understand both sides. I understand where the owners are coming from. I can understand where a player is coming from. But I'm taking a very cautious approach in saying this is day one of negotiating that has to fit into probably a two to three week period to come up. So you're going to have guys, you know, coming with their first proposal and they're going to say absolutely not. And then cooler heads prevail. You lock guys in a room and you say, we need to work this thing out. And I do think I really do believe 
because of the first deal that got done, they all understand, for the most part, the the importance of having sports back and the role that the sport of baseball could play back when you don't have college football and you don't have a lot of golf and you have a little bit of tennis and you don't have the NFL yet. I mean, it, it can play a vital role in helping heal to an extent and divert attention towards the negative things that are going on in our country. I love that you're taking a positive approach to it because I think a lot of people initially hear the Jeff Passan comments about how this is going to get really, really ugly and they start to feel anxiety because people are craving baseball. They're craving live sports. But to your point, I don't think that the Players Association was going to say, hey, you know what? Reasonable offer. This is fair. Let's just sign off on this right now. (laughs) It's always been contentious and it's going to be contentious certainly in this week and today as more things start to leak out um but i go back to when they first did this whatever it was now what's it been guys probably six weeks ago that they came up with the 175 million to the players and they they got that done and people were giving in that understanding that there's going to have to be a give and take and so i look at that as a positive um i understand they don't want to cap and i don't really look at it as a cap, I look at it as a 50-50 revenue share, which apparently they don't want to do that either. And by the way, they haven't had a 50-50 revenue share in years. And Last other, year, they got 37% of the revenue. And other sports are doing it, and it works fine, and the mm-hmm. big players in those sports are getting paid, so it does work, and you also have to look at it as 82 games as an, and an outlier. The, the problem I would have, and I'm going to hit on this point, is that if a player says, if a player comes out and says, if you asked him, are you comfortable with the medical precautions that are being taken to assure your safety? And he says, yes. Are you comfortable in what is presented and how the game is going to be played? Yes. Are you comfortable with the money you're making? No. I got a real problem with that. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I have a real problem with. Now, there's going to be some guys that come out and, again, I get it. They say, I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel safe. I've got little kids. I've made generational money. No problem. You don't have to play. Agreed. Mm-hmm. You don't have to. Mm-hmm. No problem. With, and I won't hold that against that person one bit. But if it's coming down that your reason that you don't want to play is over money, that that don't that don't fly with me. I am with you 100%. And I don't think it's going to fly with the general public either. Not at, at all. all. No. And they would still be... I don't know what the numbers are, but... If I'm an owner, I'm not going to put myself in a position where I could conceivably lose money on this proposition. With 35-man rosters, 50 players, and we mentioned yesterday, still have to travel, still have to pay insurance, still have to pay those Ritz-Carlton hotel bills. So there, there is, uh, and pay the employees in the office, there, there are other expenses beyond player payroll for the owners. What do you guys think, though, of, the, of paying for what would be an inherent risk of going to play? So... For instance, and I see this point, an owner, he could be sitting in his living room watching these games Mm -hmm. where the players are the ones exposing themselves potentially to the virus. They're the ones that are taking the risk. And what is that worth? I don't know that answer. I don't know monetarily what that answer would be. But I I would go back to this simple question, too, or statement is that, look, you don't have to play. No No one's holding a gun to your head. I mean, if you don't want to play, I get it. But there's going to be plenty of people in this union, in my opinion, especially younger guys that want to play and are saying, I'll take that risk. Absolutely. If I'm a 22 to 35 year old male that's in great shape and I'm among a group of people that are being tested weekly for the virus, I actually feel pretty comfortable. I think I would feel more comfortable with that group of people than I would in a grocery store. Well, if 
if Wainwright or Molina or Clayton Kershaw or Mike Trout, any of these guys come out and say, you know, we're not playing, again, no problem. I just hope that that doesn't make that the stance of the entire union because right. you know there's going to be guys that want to play. And there's guys that are probably looking at their careers and saying, I need to play this year to stay sharp. I need to make some money. And I'm looking forward to next year and beyond where the other guys are saying, eh, I, I don't really need to necessarily take this risk. And that's okay. Yeah. And I think another part of this is as opposed to the Florida, Arizona, or only Arizona, my understanding is that players playing in their home cities is because they have residences there and they'll be able to go home to their families. They would be with their families. Um, and so if you have 50 players, Michelle, I guess so 30, that's what, 1,500 players you would have. That doesn't include... Now, that's something you got to keep... quick math and that was fabulous. And yeah, you, you great gotta, work. You got to keep in mind, too, you got your medical teams, you've got your traveling party, mm-hmm. you've got your support staff. You're going to definitely have some type of media there. I'm sure they would really restrict that as much as mm-hmm. they can, but you're talking about cameramen and women and technicians and those kind of things. It's a daunting task. It is. However... If if it's here's the in my mind, and I don't know if I'm right with this or not. I'm curious about your opinions. If it's not done now, then when? So this time next year, if we still have a virus, well, are you going to go back to last year and say, well, you, you, we we presented this and you didn't want to do it then, so why are we going to do it now? Mm-hmm. Now there could be advancements in medical um, assurances for players and vaccine, maybe, knock on wood, by God, I hope we have it. But if not, if not now, then when? Hey, you, when is, and we hit on this earlier, when you really need the cash to make that $11,000 a month house payment? Uh, I would agree with that, too. And that that's something that I think is going to be interesting that comes out of this. Let's just say they do. As you said, Michelle, I'm trying to stay positive. Let's just say they do come out of this and they have an agreement and we at least have a chance to have some baseball this year. Remember, the CBA, the collective bargaining agreement between the players and the owners, is up December of 2021. And when you get in these rooms, man, sometimes there's from any of these work stoppages or strikes, there's been bad blood. Mm-hmm. And you wonder with it being so uh, quickly coming up after this type of negotiation, what type of bad blood uh, and residual effect does that have going into the next CBA? And and also the revenues. I mean, the revenues are going to change dramatically. And so the landscape of what we had two months ago and that Thursday afternoon doing a game between the Marlins and the Cardinals in spring training, that's over. This has changed, and, and that'll be really, really interesting to see. That was the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN.